morning, or good afternoon, no, it's still morning. Well, just about everything that could happen, happened this trip. First of all, I came in on a plane that only had seven passengers, five of whom had luggage, and they lost mine. <laughs> so I spent all day yesterday worrying about underwear, and it came about 11.30 last night and a couple of other little incidents, and now my name has been changed <laughs> since I came to Lano. Thank you. My name is Mary, uh, and I am a very grateful member of Worldwide Elanon and really delighted to be here. You know, you, you get these invitations, I think, well before Christmas, and you think in the middle of winter, oh, I'd love to go to Maryland. Thank you. And now that I'm here, I'm thinking, what in the world am I doing? And I thought we were going to meet in that little room that little Alnine room. They didn't tell me I was going to be up here following that lead that we just heard that was absolutely so moving and so wonderful. But I am delighted to be here. And it's always a privilege, and I thank the committee, and I thank those who are responsible for giving me this opportunity. See, this Alnine business is an interesting part of life. I didn't come to Alnine to get anybody sober. I came to Elnon to get somebody that I lived with and kept making babies with to drink obediently. <laughs> and the reason for that was <clears throat> I had grown up with a lot of drinking in, in my home <clears throat> and all the things that go with it. And I reasoned out as a kid, I didn't think that the drinking was a problem in our house. I thought we lived different than the neighbors and the community because we were Irish. My parents were Irish immigrants, and we had a tendency to entertain the neighborhood. We, there wasn't television at that time, so visits from the police and people beating each other up and just all these little things that happen in a house where there's, a, uh, there's this going on. We never knew what this was until later in life, I suppose. My dear mother used to say, oh, your father's a good man. He's just a little too fond of the drink. She uh, sent me off one time when he was in the hospital to have him visited by the clergy, and I was to inform the clergy that he was a good man, just a little too fond of the drink, which to me, looking back, was the understatement of the century. Um, so at any rate, I made a decision as a kid that I was going to live a different life, and I would avoid having the angry, frightened house that I grew up in, I will not marry an Irishman, nor will I date one or have anything to do with them. I love them, but I just was going to avoid and make a change in my life. So already I can look back and see that my thinking was confused and my perspective slightly distorted. So I went about, I <clears throat> made a big issue of changing the school district and getting into a different path because everything that I was involved with, the school that I went to, the nuns that taught me, the church I belonged to, were all Irish. And so I thought, well, when I was heading to high school, I thought, now I'm going to change this. And I got myself with a lot of uh, muscle, moved off to a different section of the city, which they didn't do at that time willingly. And I went out to s seek uh, people from a different part of Europe, um, these people were all Lithuanian and Polish and Russian that attended this particular school. And I find myself this uh, nice Polish gentleman with a ski at the end of his name. And he looked good. And I 
persuaded him that he needed me. And the reason being, when I went into his home, they lived different. They had time for things. They had doilies around lamps that had starch that, you know, you young people won't even know about these. They did something with sugar and made them stand up and crawl around the lamp. And I remember the first time I went in his home, I thought, you know, if you fell on one of those things, you'd slit your throat because it was, <laughs> it was so heavily starched. They had time for that. We didn't have time for that in our house. We, we um, you know, you know, putting clothes in drawers after they were laundered seemed to be a burden. So they just, everything just piled up around and we just didn't have time. And, uh, you know, it was, I just decided I was going to have a different kind of life. So off we go into this wonderful uh, new life of, of marriage. And I have to tell you, I only know about myself in retrospect. I can see looking back that I started to react to even the most normal drinking right off the get-go. I, I had a fear of drinking that even though I drank myself, you know, I, I certainly went off with, uh, you know, the friends that I was involved with, but I just had a fear of creating the same kind of life and the same kind of home that, that I had experienced. I had, there was something I wanted, and I wanted it to be different. So I was reacting very early on to my husband's drinking, not knowing, not recognizing uh, that it was different than most of my friends, but certainly not yet at the point where it would someday become. So anyway, as time went on, and just as alcohol does, it progressed very nicely, and I with it. Um, <clears throat> and at some point in time, you know, one of the things in our one of the things you'll read in our literature that often alcoholism is recognized in the non-alcoholic member of a family far sooner than in the alcoholic, and that was certainly my case. My husband went to great lengths to look normal, and he did a lot of normal things like go to work, go to church on Sunday, uh, show up at home. Uh, you know, he did some pretty normal things. I, on the other hand, uh, would entertain you with things like how nervous I was. If you would have the misfortune of asking me how I was at that time, I would have to look over my shoulder to see how the other person was. If they were up, I was fine. If they were done, I would tell you about the itch I had, my hair was falling out, and that I was concerned about the price of wheat in China. <laughs> totally, you know, and looking back, I can, I can see that I was incapable of telling you how I was because I had become so totally obsessed with what the other person was doing that I had no clue. And I just gradually was losing, uh, you know, the, the normal progression of growing up, so to speak. So, Anyway, as I said, often alcoholism can be recognized in the non-alcoholic, and that was my case. I had a neighbor, an acquaintance, who, whose husband had been in AA, and she, as you know, our kids were going to uh, school together, and I guess she heard about the itch and the wheat in China and all the other things I would lay on her at that time. And she said to me, you know, there's something you might be interested in. Very carefully, she mentioned this. And I knew through the grapevine that her husband was an alcoholic. It was kind of, you know, said without being said. No clue what that meant. Um, <clears throat> but she told me about this place and that she had some friends that would be happy to take me there. Um, and I said, okay. And I got the woman's phone number. 
and I, I interrogated her, you know, what it was and so on. And I had a lot of difficulty going to Elmont <clears throat> because I was very busy trying to look normal, you know, curtains on the windows and sending kids to school and voting on election day and, you know, being fine, fine, fine. You know, how are you? Oh, just fine, fine, you know. Uh, <clears throat> but when she told me where it was, it was quite a distance from my home. And uh, I thought, well, maybe. I thought maybe I could book out there. These people would be willing to come and get me. So I phoned the, per- the woman, and when she answered the phone, I hung up. About two years later, I kept the number, I kept the number, and we progressed right along, and things got continued to get, uh, you know, worse as time went on. I certainly was getting worse. So I called the person again, and when she answered the phone, I thought, oh, my God, she's going to know that was me that hung up on her <laughs> years ago. Now, you know, what's really scary, at that time, I'm telling you, as true as I'm standing here, I had no clue that that was an irrational thought. It was, it bordered on being insane. You know, uh, they didn't have caller ID. They didn't have any of those, those things at that time. But anyway, because it was in a place far enough away, I thought, okay, maybe I could book in there, find out how to get this obedience thing going change things and prevent things. Because I remember saying to my husband, if you keep drinking like this, uh, you're going to get all white-faced like that brother-in-law of yours um, who works in a club, you know. So I was really trying to save him. You understand, my motives and my intentions were very good. Okay, so along comes this lovely couple to take me off to this distance place. And as I said, I had a hard time because it seemed to go against everything I believed about marriage. You don't put your business on the street. You don't label other people and so on. And pride, was I going to admit to the world and to myself that I had made the fatal mistake of doing the exact thing that I didn't want to do, getting back into uh, uh, alcohol and all all its business, all its things. The other reason I had a hard time going there, uh, I don't know up you know, here in Maryland, whether you're aware, but sometimes Irish people have a few prejudices. They have certain things that they believe very strongly, like everybody doesn't get to heaven, only those who are of a certain creed. Uh, and my father uh, was very wise and very well read. And, and every time he would be drinking, he would be talking about some guy by the name of Henry VIII. Had no clue who this was. I thought he was a relative. Because... <laughs> We heard about him so often, so repeatedly, over and over. And whoever he was, he had ruined everything in the world from this Irishman's perspective. So you didn't go in his churches. Going in those churches was as bad as going into the YMCA. I mean, and that was, you, you know, this was not done by good women. I mean, good people. So here's where the meeting is in this Episcopalian church. So I get there with all my pride. And on the ride to the meeting, by the way, I'm sitting in the back seat, and, and the woman is trying to give me all out and on all at once. She talked and talked and talked and and she was telling me the whole business and the sickness and where it'll go and what you've got to do. I was paying little attention to her. Obviously, she made a career of this. That wasn't my intention. I was going in, book in, find out, get out, and that's it. I was looking at him, the back of his neck, trying to see what do one of them look like? What's, you know, and... You know, I was just fascinated. Okay, so we get there. All my pride, all my fears, all my guilt, all the things that you carry with you. 
into those meetings, and most of all the pride that I was carrying. And at that, that particular meeting, uh, there was an AA meeting on the first floor that you had to go through to get to the Elnon meeting up on the third floor. The man, they had greeters at the door, and the gentleman who was the greeter that night happened to be a neighbor. He lived a block and a half from my home. He was my son's Boy Scout leader, and he was an usher in my church. So I immediately explained to him, I'm not the alcoholic. I don't know why I'm here. Woman told me to come, and he doesn't drink. I don't drink. Where I'm going. <laughs> it was a huge room. The man never spoke. He backed away, and he pointed to a pair of steps. He knew exactly where I needed to go. My entire journey across the room with the moth running and the people sitting there, I never stopped. I just kept defending myself, explaining. So now I go up to the room where the meeting is, and I hear so many people say, oh, the first time I came, I just fell in love. I knew I was home. Oh, you know, it was just wonderful. Not me. It was, it was strange. Uh, they had all kind of signs hanging around. You may have seen some of them here. Let go and let God and easy does it. All this pious piffle, I thought to myself. I didn't say that, but that's what I'm thinking. And then there was people there with gray hair, old, old people sitting there. And they're talking about serenity. Serenity, I'm thinking. You know what I was thinking at that time? I had different color hair. I had my own teeth. I had a whole lot of body parts. They were very different at that time. And I'm thinking, serenity for them, great. They're old. But now the room was divided into two parts. Here on this side were those wonderful wives of, of the AA members at that time. And on the other side was a, a little group, a little nucleus of people who were just learning what Elnon was. So... <clears throat> I didn't know that this tension was going on because I'm in there with no intention of staying. And when I heard them talking about things like God and spirituality and, you know, all this stuff, I thought, my Lord, uh, these people are just learning about God at this age in their life. No wonder their husbands drink, I thought. <laughs> I didn't say that. You know, what you, you, I've learned in Elmon, you don't always have to say what you think. In fact, it's a rather important thing <laughs> to learn. So anyway... Uh, the big AA meeting's going on downstairs, and when the women heard the clapping, this side of the room jumps to their feet, and they said, we've got to go down and get the hot dogs ready for the men. The other side of the room said, if you want to get down and get the hot dogs ready, you just go ahead. We're here to fellowship, and we're going to stay right here. That got so bad, that struggle, you know, and that, 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 that part of the program where we were just developing, that the, the, uh, the, this side of the room started to stand down at the bottom of the steps, and if anybody came hunting Elnon, they would say, oh, dearie. Everybody called you dearie then. They don't do that anymore, thank God. Oh, dearie, don't go up there. They'll ruin your marriage, you know. So that little meeting uh, broke up in, in a short period of time. And I look back at that, and I can see that the higher power just kept it going long enough for me to get there, because I'm telling you, I would have been incapable of going to a meeting with that baggage of, fear and guilt and blame and all the things that, and none of which my husband ever put on me. It was what I internalized and interpreted and perceived in that whole business, uh, which to me, when I think about it, describes to me the baffling part of alcoholism, how somebody who doesn't drink can sometimes uh, become as irrational uh, you know, as the person who's doing the drinking, it, it's just absolutely baffling. 
uh, to me. So anyway, it stayed there just long enough, and shortly after that, a meeting close to my home, within 10 minutes of my home. I didn't, you know, as I said, I went there to get obedience in the other person. Still trying to get it. A lot of years later, still trying, doesn't work. If you're trying it, quit, because you waste a lot of time. But what was happening to me, I started to become the obedient one. I would go to this new meeting, person still drinking, and they would say things. You know, they would, uh, you know, they would do things, and they would say things, and they would hand you a piece of literature. When I would try to uh, uh, hand my business to them to, for a solution, looking for the, you know, the solution to whatever it was I was looking for at that moment, they would say, "Why don't you just sit quiet tonight? And here's a little piece of literature, and give us a call. Here's my phone number." And I'd think they were patronizing. They were sort of patting me on the head, and I was offended. They were suggesting that maybe I was sick, that maybe there was something wrong, and that I needed a program of recovery. And I'm thinking, recovery from what? I don't drink. What is this? But I was becoming obedient. I was becoming obedient to something I didn't understand. It didn't make any sense to me. I didn't like it. Because they would say things like, do you have a car? Yeah. Oh, good. Well, why don't you meet us at the corner of such and such a place? We're going over to St. Francis. St. Francis, I said, that's the mental hospital, isn't it? Yes. What are you going to do there? We're going to talk to some people. I said, in the mental hospital. They said, you just come, pick us up, but you say nothing. You just sit there. You don't talk. Just watch us. They never mentioned the word service. You know, they just got you to do things. And I would, I would obey, even though I would think to myself, these people are really, really rude. Don't they know I have a busy life? I've got all those kids. I've got this and I've got that and I've got all these things. And they're asking me. They're sort of making me like a slave, you know, here. No word of service, but what they were doing. And I, I really feel blessed on that, that I was into, introduced to service uh, so early on in, the, in those kind of ways. So I would go. And then gradually, in some time, I was allowed to say some things, which was which was interesting. But I kept going and I kept going. And... And, and even Al-Anon started to, um, started to, in some ways, make me feel worse in some ways because though I was going and I was obedient and I was doing those things they were telling me, they'd say, say that serenity prayer, and I'd say that serenity prayer. And they would tell you to read that literature and come to these meetings and so on and so on. And my partner kept drinking, my husband kept drinking, which added to my sense of failure. I thought, God, I'm even failing this because other people would come in and they would have dark circles under their eyes and their hair all astray and they're crying and wailing, uh, you know. And about three months later, their husband or wife was with them and they were traveling down the AA road and hand in hand and giving leads and talking. And I'm thinking, God, there's something wrong with me. I was in Elnon a, a good while before alcohol proved to my husband that he needed to take care of his, his drinking, you know. But I kept going, and, and I'm always grateful to be a part of any kind of an AAF, you know, uh, gathering of any kind. Because one of the things that people told me in those early days of the meeting, they used to say, you know, if you want to understand the futility of thought, that you cause this illness, or that you can cure it, or that you can control it, what you need to do is go to some open AA meetings and listen attentively to people who have experienced the illness. And you will learn 
the futility of thinking and, and the error of your thinking that this is something that you caused. So, as I said, I was the obedient one now. Off I went to AA. And I have to tell you, first meeting I went to, I was enraged. There was some guy up there. He had lost a train or broke a train. He did something terrible with a train, very expensive train. And he's laughing. And the people are laughing. And I'm thinking, he spent 45 years of his life messing up other people's lives, wrecking trains, and now he's going to spend the other half of his life laughing about it. I went back to the Al-Anon meeting, and I said, how dare you send me there? This is terrible. This is, oh, and I went on and on about it. And again, the patronizers were there. There's a whole pile. There's like a committee in Al-Anon of patronizers. They just kind of pat you on the head because they know there's no use trying to talk to you. You're, it's like, you know, any more than you would talk sensibly to somebody who's raving drunk, you know, and try to talk to somebody who really, you know, doesn't have the, the, the at least a glimpse of the uh, knowledge yet. So anyway, they would patronize, you know, and they're patting you on the head, and they said, just keep going back, because the way you hear that and the way you think about that and the way you feel about that is going to change, because the whole intention of Elnon, the whole purpose of Elnon in helping families and friends of alcoholics is to bring about change, not necessarily the change that the other person uh, might also achieve sobriety or recovery, um, but the, but your probability or your chances are there. So they would say that's the purpose of it: the way you think, the way you feel, and the way you behave will change. And so again, obediently, because somehow or other, even though it made no sense to me, I trusted it. Somehow or other, they had something that I wanted. I couldn't define it. I couldn't name it. I couldn't tell you what it was. But I knew I wanted it. I really knew I wanted it. So back I went. And, and uh, one of the things I experienced was a, a combined retreat where the uh, AA women and the Elnon women were together. And there was a young woman there. And one of the things she shared was that she never wanted to be the mother who went to uh, the Little League, Little League game with a six-pack. And she didn't want to send her kids to school with different colored shoes. That was never her desire as a child and, and, and as a woman and as a person. And I don't know how it happens, but you know how we talk about these awakenings or this awareness that comes, these spiritual experiences. Somehow in listening to her, what I heard for the first time was that if, if the alcoholic could speak, if they weren't in the bondage of this horrible, horrible disease, they would beg us to save ourselves. And that was the message that came. And for the first time, and at that point, I knew that Elnon indeed was a program of recovery for me and that those steps uh, were a, a recovery for me and the service was recovery for me. If somebody else got sober, which certainly was a desire and, and uh, still continues to be with a few other people in my life <clears throat> that uh, are alcoholic, that would be a second reward. But the primary reward is a direct, in my opinion, a direct gift from God from those of us whose lives somehow are tangled up in alcoholism. doesn't matter where you get one, whether you birth them, marry them, <laughs> live next door, work with them, wherever you're at. If you're anything like me, I'm reasonably sane in most of my behavior in life, in my conduct in life. But get me together 
with somebody who's a, you know, an alcoholic and, and somehow I either try to fix them, save them, kill them, or, you know, whatever, something, something, they, uh, there's some, there's some kind of a strange thing. So with that, Elnon took on a whole different dimension, and as I said, in time, alcohol, not through anything that I did or could do. Uh, my husband, you know, the day came that he was able to recognize that, that, um, uh, he needed to do something about his drinking. One of the things, for instance, was losing a job and almost a pension and, you know, just those little things that happened. So I kept going. And the, uh, you know, just to give you some insight, I, when I look back, as I said, I only know myself in retrospect. If I would have known how damaged I was from the disease of al untreated alcoholism over the course of a lifetime. If I would have seen how damaged I was, I don't think I would have made it. I might have jumped off a bridge or taken, I don't know, taken Valium or done something uh, completely different. But I'm convinced that it was the mercy of God that didn't allow me to see you know, the damage and how, how um, confused and, and uh, distorted that I had become. Now, the people in those meetings saw it, and what they saw about me uh, that I could not see myself was that if I was willing, if I kept coming and if I kept doing what they were telling me to do, whether I liked it or didn't like it, whether I liked them or didn't like them, they knew that I could become a completely different human being. They knew that, and in their goodness, they, they didn't, they didn't uh, you know, pound it on me. They didn't shoot the wounded, so to speak. So, anyway, you know, I just, I just kept coming and kept doing what they were saying, uh, um, you know, to do. And I'm convinced that that's the mercy of, of my God that didn't allow me to see that. Only in, in time when I'd be able to handle it and I'd be able to see it as that guy who lost the train, I'd be able to see the humor in it. Because when I came in, the, the one thing that I lost most of all was humor. You know, nothing was funny. Life was bad. Nothing was, you know, uh, I could be watching a, a commercial and see something in it that was, oh, the world's going to, you know, the sky's going to fall and so on. But just give you even an insight into what was uh, going on in my life when I arrived at that door and didn't even recognize this to be strange. My husband was a truck driver, and uh, uh, he wasn't in the union yet. He wasn't at the height of his earning power at that point in time. And one day when he came home and he had been drinking, not totally drunk or smashed out of his mind, but he's pulling something out of the newspaper, an advertisement for a trailer truck. And I forget how many children we had at that time, maybe six. And uh, anyway, he said, uh, I'm, he's cutting it out. And he said, I'm going to buy this trailer truck. And it was something like twenty, thirty thousand dollars which was a fortune. Now, we were having trouble paying the paper boy in a timely way, and <laughs> gynecologists and, and pediatricians and all this. Now, anybody in her right mind, knowing that nobody has that power to spend that kind of money, would say, yeah, really? Oh, that's, that'd be nice. Maybe you could get two. You know, not me. I started explaining, oh, my God, you can't do that. Oh, my Lord, what, how would you even dress around? How are we going to send these kids to college? She's seven years old, you know, and I'm thinking how we're going to pay for college. Uh, so he cuts the thing out of the paper, puts it in his pocket, and goes to bed. The sane, non-drinking, non-drug-taking uh, person laid awake most of the night thinking about where we would park that truck. <laughs> And when I realized where we might be able to park it, I realized it would be on the neighbor's yard. 
or under yard or driveway, just just touching it. And I said to myself, self, if she says one word to me about that truck, I will tell her about her dog in my yard, <laughs> hanging clothes out on Sunday morning, her mannerisms and so on. The next morning, the man gets up, refreshed, ready to go to work, rested. The well person gets up, bags under the eyes, tired, irritable, screaming at the kids. Um, you know, he goes off to work. I go out in the yard. The neighbor comes out. She has no idea that we have been up all night fighting about the truck. I came into Elnon stores, and I am telling you, I had no clue how irrational that was. And it was sometime years before I got to Elnon. So in God's goodness, he didn't allow me to see that until I was at a meeting one day, and somebody talked about someone, um, their husband had promised the kid a horse or a pony and showed up on Christmas Day with a pony, and it registered with me about, you know, the, the truck and so on. But I kept coming, and I kept doing, and little by little, little by little, it started to make sense, and, and, and I would, you know, continue to doing. I'm convinced in my own life that the steps were what gave me a serenity, you know. I think that I think they embodied in ever, all the principles of our program, the steps and slogans and traditions, you know, little by little, that, that serenity, uh, which I... Came to You know, when I first thought of serenity, I told you what I thought it was for people who were in rocking chairs and, you know, ready for calmness. Um, <laughs> that wasn't. But I came to realize that what serenity really means to me is clarity, to be able to recognize those things I can change and those things that I can't change. And as long as I kept it in that, that uh, thinking of, you know, God grant me the clarity to know what my business is, what your business is, what God's business is, to keep my life, you know, balanced. I'm, I think so much of our, of our concept that talks about balance and so on. So little, you know, little by little. The other thing I think, we talk a lot about service and we encourage service and tell people how important service. I'd like to share with you the most important service thing because the people told me early on, try not to say no, you know, because you know, you'll, you'll feel better. They didn't say you'll grow in their spiritual growth in this. They didn't use all that stuff. They knew they had to limit their words. You know, they had to just keep it kind of simple. Uh, but they would just say, you will feel better. If you try these things, you will feel better. When you're asked to do something, you will feel better. One of the most interesting pieces of service that I ever had the privilege of doing at that time, Eleanor was pretty new in Pittsburgh. You know, it was just in the formation of growing and getting there and so on. Uh, there were a few meetings and gradually growing. And we were very anxious in, in our efforts following Lois's direction and the importance of getting the, you know, uh, the awareness of Elnott out to the public and most particularly uh, to our AA family, uh, you know, who, di who didn't quite understand in all cases who we were and what we were about. So we were lucky that at least the one or two meetings welcomed us to, to meet at the same time. And so there was, you know, one of our biggest jobs as far as public outreach was to get information to AA to know who we were so that they wouldn't think we were there, you know, with nothing else to do, I suppose. 
So anyway, uh, one of the traditions in most of our AA meetings and Elmon meetings is to celebrate our anniversary dates. And this particular one that I was going to that was close to home was a huge AA meeting where we met. They have almost like a Polish wedding when they celebrate their anniversary. And they invited us to have Elnon, some Elnon person to come and speak for about 10 minutes to tell, you know, who the neighbor was in the other room and so on. So as I said, relatively new. So one of the gentlemen who was uh, pretty active in the program and had a pretty good grasp of what it was about asked me to speak for 10 minutes. And I was hesitant, never spoke, not even in high school. I wasn't on a debate team or anything else. Um, I said, well, and he said, you just, you know, a little bit. It'll be before the meeting because they don't include you in the meeting. I said, okay. Now in the meantime, the usher guy who I met at the first meeting knowing my husband through church, would be inviting him to AA. He told him about this big feast that was going to be. And so about two weeks before the anniversary, he agrees to go to a couple of meetings. I think he was thinking of the stuffed cabbage that would be there rather than the recovery. So anyway, he announces he's going to go. And I was like horrified. Oh, how will I get up? Talk about ego. Oh, what if I say something that offends him? You know, because my job in life, remember, was keeping this person happy, okay? Uh, so I went to the person who asked and said, no, you better not do that. No, he said, well, let's see. What if the situation was reversed? What if he was asked and you were going to be there and he reneged because you, I'd be insulted? He said, there's your answer. Okay, so I agree. I get to the meeting, not knowing there's 300 people going to be there. I walk in the room. Uh, we're going out the door, by the way. He gets all dressed up for this. We're going out the door. He has his hands on the doorknob. He said, you know, I'm not an alcoholic. Because I guess he's thinking, what the hell is she going to say, you know? And I thought, oh, that's wonderful. I get to the meeting. I see this crowd. I go to my Elnon friends and said, oh, how am I going to, oh. They said, oh, don't worry about it. If you lay an egg, just stand back and admire it. We'll admire it with you. you know? <laughs> so every time I'm asked to speak, I think, this is it. The big egg's coming. They were so comforting. Okay, so anyhow. Lots of prayers, I said, get up, and I did my 10 minutes, and I heard myself. It's funny how things happen. His having said that going out the door put an idea in my head that I had never thought of. I, when I got up and did the 10 minutes, I didn't faint, I didn't throw up, I didn't get snot on the microphone, I didn't do anything <laughs> that was offensive. Uh, but I heard myself saying, I have no idea whether the person who I care about is an alcoholic or not. I have no idea. But I do know that that person's drinking bothers me, and that's what brings me to Elmont. So anyhow, I go through the few minutes. The people are very gracious, very nice. They clap. Now they're going to eat before the AA official meeting opens. They come up this large aisle, similar to this, shake my hand, thank me, and you know I'm, <laughs> remember, never having done anything like this. Up comes my partner, who I have all these children with, sleep with every night. Puts his hand out, shakes my hand, doesn't say good, bad, rotten, nothing. Shakes my hand like as if he's some visitor from West Virginia. <laughs> so, okay, I got home. Now, I'm wired. Honest to God, I am absolutely wired. I had never experienced anything like that. And then, the, you know, the applause and so on. The next day, I'm walking around as if, as if I had won the lottery the night before, just feeling something so different, and I couldn't label it. 
And I'm walking through the room, and all of a sudden I thought to myself, my God, I no longer have that desperate need of approval that was killing me, trying to get approval from a human being who was incapable because of their illness of giving it. I wanted it, but I no longer was in the bondage of that, you know, my life depending on that. I was free of that. Now, there was 300, at least 300 alcoholics in that room. Not one of them, their lives changed because of anything I said that night or did that night. And none of my Elmon companions' lives changed as a result of anything I said or did that night. But there was a fundamental change in me that has continued from that day to this. And, I, and, and that was the service. And that's exactly what service does. It's what it does for you, and you don't even know it. And you can't, you can't measure it, and at least in my opinion. That's, you know, that's what it is. It, certainly I went on from that and did all kinds of other things because now you get a hunger you know, for it. And then you're, they're saying, be a GR. Well, that takes you away to Harrisburg. And right in those days, be in any place except home. I went up there, and we were in a nice, the two, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, used to fight like, you know, <clears throat> all kind of ways about things like, should we buy a typewriter or, you know, those kind of things. But it amazed me because all this stuff that went on, we were like Army and Navy playing the game. Uh, and then they sat down and ate together. And this was fascinating. In our house, when you fought, you threw the food. You didn't mess around <laughs> having a conversation. So, it, you, know, it just, it, you know, it just went on. And little by little, layer by layer, my higher power allowed me to see you know, the, the parts of me that needed repair. The most difficult part of recovery for me is recognizing the, uh, the damage that I did to my children, uh, you know, because every part of me that belonged to them was being sucked into alcoholism. You know, it was being sucked into uh, my efforts to get somebody else to change, uh, to be better, you know, to be, to be all the things you want them to be. And so that's painful. That was very painful to look at. But I rest, I rest uh, you know, I've come to know in Elnon that guilt serves no purpose except to make you feel self-centered. It keeps you focused on your own belly button. And it's, it, to me, it's an insult to my higher power. And I've learned in Elnon, I do not have the power to repair any mistake of judgment or change any of the things in the past. I have no power to do that. But the God I believe in does have that power. And in the first and second and third steps, it tells me, I can't, he can, I'm going to let him. I am to amend. Amend does not mean to repair. It means to change. It's just a simple, a simple kind of a thing. So, you know, all those, just little by little, and it never stops. It never stops. You know, every experience I have, you know, I'm learning something more about life uh, uh, and about, you know, just being part of Ellen and, and um in the program itself. The other thing that kept me busy in those days, and, and you know, I share this uh, because it's important for me to, 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 you know, look back and know what happens to me if I forget to practice the program. You know, I have a sign on my refrigerator that says nuts, not practicing this, not using the steps. You know, it kind of reminds me. Uh, in UTS, it means not using the, so when I'm unhappy, 
You know, all you need to do is uh, look at where in the steps do I need to be. One of the other things that kept me busy, I had all kind of therapies for myself in those years. One of the, uh, uh, one of the things that, that in time I was able to see about myself, the most painful day in our house for me was the day that my husband was going to go get a haircut. Now, you don't mention it everywhere you go. You know, if you get on the plane or on the bus or go to work, you don't say to somebody you're with, you know what, there was a time in life my main activity was watching another human being's hair grow. People move away from you. They get, you know, say, oh, really? You know. But in al they understood. And I'll tell you why that was. He wasn't a stay-away drinker, uh, his pattern of drinking. He, had, he grew up with some kind of a, a, a thought that if you worked, somehow it came with the umbilical cord. When you work, you get a license that makes you drink, I mean, allows you to drink. Because he still to this day will say, when I was a kid, I couldn't wait to grow up to drink. And I said, most people don't think that. Most kids want to be a fireman or a soldier or a doctor or something. And he gets, you know, whoa, whoa. But anyway, he wasn't a stay-away drinker. Uh, but it could take anywhere from two hours to two months to, before the haircut would be secured. Not that he stayed away, that wasn't his pattern. But anyway, I knew intuitively that whatever kept him away, he loved more than he loved me or loved the children or the family. That, that was a thing that was inside of me. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know this thing, whatever this thing was, that seemed to be there all the time. It was at the dining room table. It was in the bedroom. It was everywhere. This, the thing. Okay, the thing being alcoholism, but we didn't know that at that time. So anyway, it could take all that time for him to go get the haircut. He would stay away. For me, internally, I thought, what's wrong with me? Why am I not bringing the, the joy and the consolation to the marriage that you're supposed to? I read all the marriage manuals. I did, you know, all the stuff you do. Uh, what is it? What is it that keeps him out? Something that he loves more. Um, I didn't think it was a woman because he was too cheap. He wouldn't, <laughs> was, that wasn't his style or his, his uh, uh, kind of conduct. And he made so many babies in this house, I think he was afraid he might make a couple out there. So he, I think, uh, you know, that might have been some of it. But at any rate, that, you know, that, that thing that was inside... And it happened, and you know, we know, we, you know, they'll tell you, we get to know each other, the rhythm of each other. It's like a movie that goes on in the house. He sensed somehow that this was something that was, you know, um, I don't know what, what he sensed, but at any rate, that grew and grew. And I had two therapies going for myself at that time. I had a real good friend, still have, a dear, beloved friend. No alcoholism in her house. And you know how it says that we can get five or six people sick as a result of one person's alcoholism? Well, I got her as nuts as me. She and I would be on the phone every single day figuring this out. I'd call her one day. I'm leaving. I think you should. I'll help you pack. Call her the next day. I'm pregnant. That's it. He needs more responsibility. And this would go on and on. <clears throat> well, that, that haircut thing grew because what would happen? He would not come back without the haircut. I'd be waiting. Okay, asking an explanation. What happened? You don't get the haircut. Oh, wait till you hear. There was a blind man. I had to help him across the street. Some poor old woman fell down a pair of steps. Somebody's dog got hit with a car. 
I'm listening. I would take this adult human being by the hand to the kitchen table, and I'd be listening, trying to figure it out. What keeps you out? Pencil and paper. How long, if he got the hair, how long is it? How many people were in the shop? Well, how long does a haircut take? Well, you would, um, I swear to you, as I stand here before you, I had no idea that that was strange. That was insane. I hate to use that word, but it wasn't, it wasn't okay. Well, my good friend, uh, in our telephone conversation, that grew, and that grew, and it grew, and it grew as time went on and, and was so unresolved that it got to the point, I used to call my friend, and the two of us, I would call her and I would say, I'm in a house with my kids and my dog. I'm whispering on the phone, guess what? And she's whispering back, no alcohol in her house, her kids and her dog, what? His hair is growing. And she would say, oh God. And we would be off to the, you know, trying to figure it out. So, and I'd be calling her every two hours as he back. You no, know, he's not back. Well, this is what you should do. And I think you should, oh, and on and on. You know, and I, when I mentioned about, you know, how difficult it is in recovery to recognize and acknowledge the damage to the kids, in the course of it, I can remember one day <clears throat> when my oldest little boy was, I'm standing at the window because what would happen? When he would make the announcement and start out the door, I would take my position at the window, and I'm wringing my hands and I'm crying, not knowing what is it, what is it, what is wrong. Never occurred to me, not one time, to say, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with me? That was what, you know, I think. <coughs> Anyhow, I was standing at the window doing my, my thing, whatever that is, and um, my little boy said, looked at me and said, Mommy, what, what, why are you looking out the window? Why are you crying? Why are you doing that? I, Don't bother me. Don't you see I'm waiting for your dad? He looked out the window and said, He hasn't left yet. He hadn't gotten in the car when this would start. <laughs> Came in Elnon and didn't, you know, it took time. And God in his goodness did not allow me to see that until I was in long enough to be able to see and get mad about it, you know, think, whoa. How could I have done that to myself? Kept on coming, still going, still active, still staying, refused to leave. They put up with me whether they went to or not. Um, you know, uh, and, and had the privilege of doing a whole lot of things. Got into service, went on to be delegate, and then even trustee. They called me, went to be trustee. I thought, oh, God, what if they find out about the haircut and the truck? And, you know, because <laughs> I'm thinking all these big shots. But you know what I learned? You know, I, we belong to such an unbelievable corporation that we own. It's absolutely incredible. And the trustees who guard our traditions in that particular part of our, of our fellowship, every single one of us, every single one of you and I, every time <clears throat> that we guard the traditions, every time that we use only conference-approved literature, every time we put money in that basket that lets us travel Elnon all over the world, that lets us create an international convention in 2008 in Pittsburgh, and I hope you're saving your money, Elnon, with AA attendance, that, that's going to happen. Every one of you and I are acting as a trustee every time we guard this that God gave us for the people who are yet to come. And uh, someone, you know, nowadays you're hearing things like, gee, what about all the people that don't come anymore? Why do people stop coming? I heard at a conference somewhere somebody say, you know what happens? People stop being amazed 
They stop being amazed. Listening to the leads I've heard this weekend, I'm amazed. I never thought when I came to the fellowship I was going to witness miracles. I thought only in church that stuff goes on. Uh, I hope to God I never stop being amazed because I don't want to lose it. I really don't want to lose it. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for having me, putting up with me, and enjoy the rest of the weekend. Thank you so much.